Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. The head of the World Bank is warning that climate change will lead to violent conflict over shortages of food and water. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said Monday that rising... Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. On today's episode, we have Adam Spencer with Filmmakers for Conservation, where we'll be talking about how to use visuals to help you with your adaptation planning. Also, stick around for the Adaptation in Wine Power Hour with Tim Watkins. Please consider subscribing to us on iTunes at America Adapts and visit our webpage, americaadapts.org. Thank Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, there is no greater threat to our planet than climate change. The world is looking to the United States, to us, to lead. This is the only planet we've got. Hi, everyone. This is Doug Parsons with America Daps, the climate change podcast. I'm very excited with our guest today. It's Adam Spencer. I'm not even quite sure to say where you're from, Adam. I know you mainly from Filmmakers for Conservation, but I'm sure you'll probably want to say that you're doing all these different things. But hi, welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me on. Um, we've worked together before, and I sort of want to go over that, but you're sort of the kind of person I think the adaptation field needs to hear more from. So yeah, let's uh, hopefully have a great conversation here. So, Adam, I'm just going to read a little bit here about your background, and then I just want you to add any additional to it that you think is right. in- important. But Adam is the co-president of Filmmakers for Conservation, a league of media professionals passionate about communicating the urgency of conservation. Adam has worked um, with the Galapagos National Park, National Geographic, Peru Verde, Energetica, the Bioco Biodiversity Protection Program, the Smithsonian National Zoo, and the Society for Conservation Biology. As you can see, Adam, you have worked with some amazing things. I know Adam for a little while now, and I'm actually, I asked Adam to be on today because he's off again down south. I think you're going back to Chile, Adam. Is that where you're headed yep. off? Yep, in about a month. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, the latest addition to the resume is a study abroad instructor for Round River Conservation Studies. So it's leading a study abroad trip through Patagonia taking students backpacking to collect data on endangered species and to contribute to land managers' information down there. And so you did it, all, I think it was in the spring semester, right? Uh, yeah, this will be year two, so or third semester. And also been able to use media down there, basically working with our partners to produce media to help them communicate their goals to their local community and for grants. Well, so I, maybe just to plug a little bit more background, like I met Adam in Washington, D.C. at a meeting for Society for Conservation Bio- Biology. There was a, a D.C. chapter, and so that's where we met. But I, you're based out in Oregon, and you pretty much spend most of your time overseas. I mean, is that a pretty accurate description that you're homeless a lot of the year? <laughs> yeah, especially since we live in a tent in Patagonia, I'd say very homeless. But yeah, happily so. Got my camera, got a laptop, and have to go explore and share those stories and meet people who are doing great things for the world and try to help them out by telling that story. So And you, and you uh, do this with your wife, right? Yeah, yeah. She's a conservation biologist. That's why we were in D.C. She was at the University of Maryland Conservation Biology Program. Uh, I was covering some politics and working for National Geographic out there. And then when my wife graduated, we packed up and moved into our tent into Patagonia. So enough of the Beltline traffic and 
out into the woods. So you guys have a pretty strong marriage, I assume. Living in a tent for that long, it, it works out, huh? Yeah, well, you know, we're also co-workers. So, uh, yeah, it works out pretty well. We're pretty happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been married 20 years. and um, oh, if wow, I had congrats. To, well, no, the point is if I had to share a tent with my wife, she would probably – we wouldn't last long after that. But good for you. And I'm sure the environment there, you wake up and open that tent door, and it, it makes it all worth it. Yeah, just – yeah. Looking out at glaciers, through the tent door, rivers, mountains. Yeah, there's a lot of open space outside of the tent as well. So, so Adam, why I invited you on is I wanted to talk adaptation. It's the whole point of this podcast. And you and I have worked together before. And I think maybe some of the things that you're doing with environmental filmmaking will come out in this discussion. But I think just as a, a baseline, when we talked first, you were very curious about adaptation. And I think... I challenged you guys when I spoke to the DC chapter was like, we need to learn to communicate this issue more effectively. And we were doing these adaptation elevator speeches and yeah. uh, you were intrigued by that. Yeah. Well, I think what fascinates me with the idea of adaptation even, and, and I hadn't heard of it much before your talk is just that from a communication standpoint, everything about climate change is doom and gloom. You know, everything is about, well, here's some conservative projections of how bad it's going to be and how much our lifestyle will have to change and how impossible it will be to get everybody on board with this. You know, the mitigation side, the two degrees Celsius rise, just the apocalypse that's oncoming. And for some reason, that works great in popular media with movies. People love that apocalypse story. But when it's nonfiction, it just really bumps people out and they turn away from it. And so there's a huge tendency with the natural history industry, the communication industry, to stay away from conservation causes and climate change since it's such a huge overarching apocalypse that's coming. And then adaptation, the messaging is really like, yes, this is happening and we are going to meet it head on and we are going to find ways to change our structures. We're going to find ways to protect our environments, to work with the natural abilities of species to adapt and to optimize their transition in this new age. And so it's really a message of can do, of hope, of like, well, yep, climate change is coming, but we can do something about it. And so from the communication aspect, from the getting people to act on something, that's the sort of rhetoric that will really connect with people and can really make a difference in this oncoming climate era. Well, I am such a sucker for like post-apocalyptic films, Mad Max, all those films. Love those yeah. things. Yeah, they're just exciting. And so I'm surprised we haven't seen uh, Hollywood's take on these things yet. Uh, it, it, probably next five, ten years. We'll see. Yeah, more we, did, we had uh, The Day After Tomorrow right. about 2004, I think that came out. The ice over freezing of New York City. Uh, and then they had the 2012 movie kind of based on the Mayan apocalypse. And there was a lot of geophysical events in that film. But yeah, you know, we, we really are living through this, what's going to happen post two degrees or, you know, how will the world change? And, and it's kind of the, the frog in the boiling pot issue is that it's all slow. And so there, now we're starting to connect more of these bizarre weather events with overall climate change and connecting the dots more firmly, but we're still kind of waiting for that huge, massive earthquake or event or something that really is like, wow, this is climate change and this is how we can see it as a, a, an enemy with a face. That's what I think makes talking about adaptation a bit tricky. All of those climate impacts, that's more Hollywood friendly. But like you said, the proactive approach to dealing with some of these impacts, how do you 
you know, use visuals to kind of explain that process. And, you know, I want to go back to that. You made a short film. We worked together and I think it was called What is Climate Adaptation? And yeah. it's actually on the America Adapts website. I thought it was a great piece. And I just, you know, I want to walk through that process let alone the product that you created. But I, I, I think you probably learned some things as you went out and you talked to different folks. And so is there observations that, that you learned through that process about adaptation? Yeah, again, going off of your idea with the elevator pitch idea of, you know, hey, can you explain climate adaptation? It's, it's really something that once you think of it as a topic or something to study, it's like, okay, yeah, I can come up with those two. Climate is changing and adaptation is how we adapt to changes. So, you know, these are all the ways in which our society and our our na- nature will have to adapt. And so it's a great idea that we went around with uh, University of Maryland students just on campus, pulled guy on the street kind of thing. And, you know, pretty much everyone had an idea once they started thinking about it of what sort of things we would do to help species adapt to climate change, how we would help the built environment and the natural environment adapt at the same time. And it's kind of just a great way to get the discussion going. I think a great way for people who've maybe never thought of adaptation or, you know, that climate change isn't just mitigation. You know, it's not just, okay, screw in a compact fluorescent light bulb and drive a Prius and I'm doing my part. But there's so much you can actually actively do. So, yeah, it's a great way just to show that conversation happening is just starting to show people talking about it. Do you think the demographic there, these were University of Maryland students, if you could do it like and you had more time and you could sort of travel across the country, I mean, who do you think you should talk to? You, I guess what kind of different answers would you get through that process? Yeah, well, there was a, a great series called Years of Living Dangerously on Showtime, and they, they had some of that and they had some celebrities. There's a, a section with Don Cheadle in Texas where there's this great drought. And they started talking to people about they think is causing the drought and how they'll change and everything like that. And, you know, that's kind of going to the front lines of these issues. You know, California, Texas, Florida, places where climate is changing now and the effects are being seen. And just to talk to people, really, what are you going to do other than waiting for, you know, maybe your good deeds of mitigation to come through? What kind of things can you do to, you know, plant trees in your yard or if you you have a coastal habitat. You could plant some mangroves and things like that. So yeah, I think maybe University of Maryland, you know, we had some environmental studies students. They might be a bit ahead of the curve. Um, I'm really surprised, uh, you know, teaching my study abroad program. A lot of our students now who are in their young 20s uh, had climate change classes in high school, which is certainly, you know, when we were in high school, they were still arguing if climate is changing. So so, yeah, I think this younger generation definitely has, has a handle up. And I think maybe going to those demographics that are traditionally against the idea of climate change or buying into the rhetoric against it, it'd be interesting to talk to them as far as, OK, well, let's forget about the argument of if it's happening or not. But here's a hypothetical. What would you do if it does happen? And instead of making it, you know, trying to point the finger of if it's American industrialism that caused climate change or if it's humans or if it's natural, just to say, well, if this is going to happen, how would you prepare for it? And how would you like to see your community prepare? I was thinking about as, you know, these environmental films. And if you're an environmental filmmaker, you you know, you're doing the bald eagle, you're doing some sort of ecosystem. You're trying to make a film and tell the story of this existing area or species. And with adaptation, I mean, don't you think it almost gets into kind of science fiction? If you're trying to tell a story of, let's use the classic sea level rise, three foot sea level rise, 
as a filmmaker, that's it, it would seem pretty challenging. Do you, I guess you could use animations, but have you speculated or any sort of advice? Of like you're dealing with a future scenario, mm-hmm. and you, and you don't know exactly what that future will be, but you have some evidence that it might be this or that. But getting that into an environmental film today, I mean, it. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, how do you get away from it? It's almost like science fiction. Yeah, well, what I was doing at National Geographic was fact-checking, and they have very rigorous standards for truth in their documentaries, in their magazine, and all their content. And so for taking a film that, say, portrayed sea level rise in Miami and had computer graphics of what the streets would look like, you know, which, I mean, there is footage of a foot of sea level storm surge as well. Yeah. But, you know, if you had a something like that, you could look at the source and look at the models and see. I think that's coming from our side of the argument here. We wouldn't want to be getting too deep into questioning that science or comparing it to science fiction. But we just say, well, this is what the model is. This is what the projection looks like. And here's what how this filmmaker has visualized this. And is that accurate according to these models? You know, go somewhat conservative, but also, you know, say, take it to the next level and say, well, here's six feet of sea level rise. You know, this is maybe 2200 if we don't change kind of thing. So there's definitely potential using graphs and using maps, I think, especially. There's been circulating, I've seen maps of, you know, what the Pacific Northwest would look like with three feet sea level rise. And and I think they're pretty popular because it is kind of a quick look at the, oh, here's here's our upcoming apocalypse that we want to talk about, you know. Well, I guess there's nothing like actual footage, though. And, you know, you've seen those flooding images of, like, the city of Venice. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and you'd mentioned Miami. And even though that's – I mean, that's a different sort of flooding event, but it is related somewhat to sea level rise. And so those are very useful. But getting your head around to, okay, three feet, five feet, that's a tricky thing. And, you know, in animation, I think people just sometimes turn off. They're like, oh, okay, maybe that'll happen. And it it really – I think it is a challenge – to get people who are making decisions today to sort of do that sort of future speculation. Um, yeah, there's great footage from the Sunderbans in uh, Bangladesh. You know, the, the sea is basically eroding the, the mud coastline and people are having to move in, inland, most of them to Dhaka and really causing overcrowding and overpopulation. Uh, Years of Living Dangerously explored that as well with, uh, I believe, Michael Hall, the actor from Psych. Is that right? Oh, okay. So, you know, they looked into that issue. So I, I think the it's out there. The content's out there. And then it's just getting people to look at it, you know, getting people to engage with it more. Because, again, people are usually looking for entertainment media for entertainment and distraction from the real world. So coming back to science fiction, maybe that is the way to look at it and to make it, you know, a pretty loose parable to what we are actually dealing with and then showing this a fantastic film uh, you know, like Game of Thrones saying that the White Walkers in the North are coming of climate change in some way and, you know, then really making people see the connection or something like that. I, I don't know if it was you who shared that with me or maybe I, I don't you saw it posted on my Facebook. But like there is that the person who made the alignment between yeah. Game of Thrones and climate change. And I thought it was fantastic. More people are going to be willing to click that on and watch through that. I thought that was great. I don't know if all the science was top notch, but it was still I thought it was very entertaining. Yeah. And that's kind of just another way to connect and get people to see the argument, I guess, is that. Here's the issue, and here's how this fantasy world handled it, and here's how we could actually handle it. Well, you'd mentioned the day after tomorrow, and I'm not even quite sure. The interest and the 
in climate change, I think, spiked after that movie. And it's actually been a long time. You know, you have to give those filmmakers credit for like even approaching and making a whole movie around the topic. And they went the direction of things freezing. That was kind of odd. But hey, you know, I guess they were talking to scientists and maybe that's something they'd mentioned that it would happen. But I wonder if that movie helped. I mean, do you have a sense? Did it help or did it create some confusion or was it just sort of general awareness around climate change? I think it it helped. It got the idea out there. I think, you know, people think of it as that, yeah, the freezing, a new ice age because of a climate disruption is not what we're looking at now. Uh, and then the, you know, the how fast it happened and everything this is definitely dramatized. But I think the idea of getting it out there was important. Um, I think you, you shared with me the an article from the Washington Post about Leonardo DiCaprio's speech at his Oscar winning this year that that was the after he spoke about climate change and how it influenced the filming of The Revenant, that climate change was mentioned the most it had ever been in one day on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I think that's kind of getting, again, just using those podiums to talk about it, to get people interested and engaged, but then also talk, say climate change adaptation. And yes, this is real. And this is how we adapted the film The Revenant. And this is how we can adapt our lives kind of thing. So just kind of drawing that second connection of yeah, I think we we should be beyond really the idea of climate change is real. I think that's we are in the rest of the world other than in the United States anyway. So I think just drawing that back to like, okay, we get it now. Now, how are what are we going to do about it, and how can we help the world? Yeah, I thought that was crazy. Leo DiCaprio has been a huge environmentalist, but he mentions this at the Oscar Oscars, and it just it spikes and uh, across the social media, you know, he's actually quite active. He's like a UN ambassador and, you know, he gives mm -hmm. his speeches in front of those crowds and to be quite honest, probably no one's really listening um, more so than your typical speaker, but you know, he does it in front of the Oscars and then I guess whatever they said, 30 or 40 million people watch that show. It, it's yeah. just a huge, uh, I was hoping to get a little plug for adapting to climate change, but heck, you know, if he's uh, willing to talk about just on the mitigation side, that's, also very important, but getting so I think, you know, like, like with your podcast is you're telling these stories of the people who are on the ground and showing early adaptation successes, you know, and if just any sort of media about that, here's a story of pikas that were translocated to a mountain that's going to stay in their climate zone for longer or, uh, you know, any of these adaptation success stories that we can start showing and taking these case studies and then applying them to greater ecosystems, then I think that's going to be a good way to get momentum as well. You know, I don't know if you told me or not. Are, are you self-taught or did you go to film school? Uh, I studied at the University of Oregon, uh, documentary film. And do you, do you feel like when you went to school that they were kind of talking about climate change or if you heard from like other environmental students over the years? It's it, I guess it's probably coming up a lot more. Yeah, I'm sure it is. My advisor, John Palfreman, made a film for Frontline called What's Up With The Weather, and he won an Emmy for that. I think that was 2005. Wow. Uh, so that was kind of going into climate change earlier on. So he was definitely involved. Some of my other, I mean, University of Oregon's a pretty environmentally focused school and area. My thesis film was about environmental education for homeschooled kids. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it was definitely an interest of mine. And, you know, during that time, I was with my wife, who was studying zoology and kind of influencing my development as a filmmaker to, wow, there's so many cool animal facts. And then how would you show that? And kind of taking that challenge and the romanticism of being a wildlife filmmaker, photographer, being able to be out in these amazing places to bring those stories home. 
Well, and you're just not a filmmaker. You're a top-notch photographer too, right? Yeah, taking photos, film. I mean, doing graphic design. It's basically you know for filmmakers for conservation and uh, now increasingly for Round River Conservation Studies, as well as for, gosh, I don't know how many other smaller pages and events, just running the social media, using the media. Uh, I think that's kind of the key to the whole thing is, okay, now we have all this photos and videos. Now what do we do with them? How do we get the word out there? So still something. And really the challenge is in conservation, there's no money for it. You know, there's few were to make a film that was about a conservation cause. You'd have to fundraise for a film that would be trying to fundraise or notify about a cause. You know, it's kind of a two-step system instead of going like, hey, here's a solution, let's do this. It's like, hey, here's a way to talk about a solution. So it can be a little bit roundabout. And there's just no money in conservation. You know, people, again, people kind of tune out when they hear the doom and gloom or the sad story of the elephants or anything like that. So it's harder to produce, you know, if you look at Animal Planet, National Geographic, BBC even somewhat, the stories are not as much about the natural history and the changes and challenges that it's facing. It's about those traditional stories of lions hunting gazelle and antelope and kind of all those relationships we already know, but now just retold with either individual characters of these species that are doing something unique or just retold with higher definition camera equipment. Oh, I think you're being too generous. Animal Planet yeah. is basically the dog channel, as far as I can tell. Um, <laughs> flipping it on with my two boys and taking your dogs out for walks. It's really quite remarkable what a lost opportunity is to to get better content than that. So, But, hey, I guess it gets yeah. ratings. Uh, they have a nonprofit arm called Animal Planet Roar, I believe. Oh, okay. And uh, they made a, they've made a film where they were working with Wild Aid. Wild Aid's an organization based out of San Francisco that essentially leverages media from professional sources like film and Hollywood and things like that to make short promotional videos. They've done a lot of work in China, including with Yao Ming, the star basketball player. Yeah. And they, they made a line where um, an advertising campaign with Yao Ming pushing away shark fin soup. And they showed they partnered with a Chinese television station and showed that shark fin soup declined 70 percent. Uh, wow. And Animal Planet partnered with Wild Aid, and they took Yao Ming to Tanzania and South Africa to look at uh, elephant and rhino poaching. And so I went and saw a presentation from Animal Planet Roar, and you know they said that this was a film they really believed in, and they put it on primetime on Thursday night, and their ratings were down like 33%. Oh, man. So, I mean, from their perspective, you know, it's, it's their money-making operation, and also... <laughs> have a lot of people that they have to keep employed as well. So, you know, I think when you try to do too much conservation, you know, good on them for doing that. And certainly they can do more and look into new ways to make it more entertaining and more profitable. But for them, it's it's a risk. Well, we don't have to dig into it now, but you and I have had ongoing discussions about what are some better mechanisms to communicate to the broader public and reality television. And I've thought about that quite a bit. And I'm just, yeah, how how do you get better ratings? How do you get people interested? What are things that are, I guess, stickier with the public? And it is a challenge. And I'm sure as an environmental filmmaker, you go to these environmental film festivals with these beautiful films and just a sliver of society is managing to go see these things. Yeah, we are definitely oversaturated with content. I mean, it's a good thing. It's, you know, communication is so democratized that anyone, you know, I don't know how many people in the world have a phone with a camera, but now you can just stream it live at any time. So, you know, there's 
enough content that to generate. How do you get the important things and what you think is important out there is really the key. And that's, I guess, coming into the either looking at, you know, what the politicians do and get all the polling information and all the demographical information and all the manipulation, or you try to go the opposite way and do it the most artistically that you can and hope that something really resonates. So I think kind of hitting it from both ends of that spectrum. Well, you'd mentioned funding is a big issue. I I don't suppose you've You've ever heard of the science communicator Randy Olson? Does that ring a bell? Uh, no. Yeah, he works with a lot of science societies, but he, you know he's based in Hollywood, and he wrote this great book, Don't Be Such a Scientist, and uh-huh. you can probably get the gist of it. I, I've worked with him before. He does trainings to scientists on like how you can be better effective, and storytelling is, is his big thing. I went to one of his seminars, and he said something I, I brought up over and over again, and you talk about these grants that foundations give or the government gives and like 85 90 percent of it is related to the project okay this is on the ground or whatever form that might be and then you just have this throwaway number of like five ten percent where you're going to communicate the products or the process Uh of your project and so he said you know they should flip that number around instead of it being 90 10 project to communication it should be 90 communication 10 percent on the project which it's probably not realistic, but I got his point, and that would obviously, you know, emphasize funding creative ways to communicate these things, and hopefully that would get more money out to 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 people like you. But that's not happening right now. It's it's a throwaway requirement, you know. Yeah, and I think, and that's something I've tried to do with filmmakers for conservation is reach out to more scientists and researchers to try to help them at least connect with knowing, okay, who can I even talk to about, you know, where am I going to get this idea communicated? And you know, I'm sure a lot of those funds go into a poster and a presentation or something like that instead of more efficiently used to, well, hire a photographer for a day and they can shoot your lab and like shoot an interview with you and make a nice photo essay and try to get it up on one of those consumable sites like I effing love science or whatever they are. Because I think the, yeah, don't be such a scientist argument. I think people are really into science. They're really into the amazing technological advances and biological information we're discovering, but they are not into consuming it like a scientist would with as much of a background statistic. You know, they kind of want the one or two liner, like this is what we found and this is how we found it. And so I think that's where you can really get into don't be a scientist, be a, a news reporter and just report what you found. Yeah, well, hopefully those are skills that maybe a scientist takes when they're in graduate school. I don't think you can expect your average scientist to pick up all those skills. It's just they should have an appreciation of those people in the industry who do those things and make an effort to reach out to them and allocate funding for it. That It's that rare scientist, I think, that's really has a gift to do all those things. But Yeah, well, and it takes, it takes a media professional to ask the right questions and to narrow down the story for what are the most interesting parts and to ask a question again to get them to explain it in a way that they could understand and that they can explain it to another audience. So it definitely helps to have that filter. Um, And yeah, just more partnership between scientists and science communicators and more training for science scientists to be more communicative. 
be helpful. Well, I think you do a little bit too, but I, I, I blog on America Daps on Facebook, and you know, I'll find a scientific study, and I'm reading it, and I think I get the gist of it all, and then I want to come up with that. You know, it's the the model of IF and love science. She's snarky and she's funny, and she, she that's why I think she has 29 million followers. But distilling a scientific study down to like a headline that sort of captures mm-hmm. the science is a little bit fun, and it. Most people are probably not going to even click on the link to go read the study, but you can give them the gist. It it really is a challenge to do that, no? To do that, yeah. and then a scientist might see what I've done and say, you know what? That's not accurate. That's not exactly what I studied there. And um, yeah, it's it's can be a challenge. It can be a bit of a balance. I think. Yeah, again, just uh, you know, knowing which buzzwords to enter, you know, which format people are most willing to click on those, and uh, then also the uh, artistic side as well. You did a webinar for the Society for Conservation Biology, and there was a term you used, and I just I wanted you to bring it up again. I think it'd be useful to listeners is something called visual evidence. And I think this is to the broader point of storytelling that you were trying to make. And just, am I not catching off guard? You know what I'm talking about though, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what do you mean by that visual evidence and how people who might be listening could, could take advantage of that? As I mentioned, yeah, my university program it was a, a journalism program and is mostly focused on television news and the difference between television news and documentary is obviously the timeline television news you're talking about something and you're showing footage of that thing you know if there's a car accident you talk about the car accident and the statistics and what happened and show footage of the crashed cars whereas a documentary you want to show the story so you'd want more of somebody in the front seat. Uh, you'd want a, the witness testimony as the main narration. Uh, there's just a difference in how produce the media to tell the story. And so visual evidence is that footage, that video or photography that is saying what you want to say without you having to say it. So if you are showing sea level rise, you don't have to say there's going to be sea level rise. You can show a photo of flooded Miami. Um, if you're trying to show animal migration, you can show a photo of a polar bear heading farther south than it's ever been recorded. Uh, and so that's, you know, if you had a polar bear with a palm tree instead of a polar bear with an iceberg that's melting, that would be a little bit more communicative of what's happening, especially since we've already seen that image so many times. So yeah, the idea of visual evidence is for scientists and researchers, you know, you'll want to find what is the one way you can encapsulate your findings in a visual frame, in a, you know, a short clip of some motion happening, and basically being able to show your audience a story instead of telling them? And hopefully your audience, most people are interpreting that visual evidence the same way. I mean, if you're doing your job right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes people need that hand-holding in the process, but hopefully it's it's that obvious that they could do that. Well, I'm a visual person. When my wife speaks to me and she tells me to do something, I literally have to tell her to slow down. I am so visual that I can really appreciate what you do. So the more of that, the better. So back to the idea of filmmaking and explaining the concept of adaptation and climate change. We talked about it being an alarmist issue. Now, you have filmmaking like is are you exploiting a situation or are you educating the public about a situation? And to me, sometimes, especially on environmental issues, it can be a fine line. It, it just seems like adaptation as you're dealing with these future impacts, it's just, it's, there's so many opportunities to like where you're really more 
exploiting the situation. And to be quite honest, maybe I don't think exploiting such a bad thing. You don't want to be lying to people, but are you really pressing the right buttons to get them more interested in this topic? But you see what I'm saying, that it, it, idea yeah. of like exploitation versus just general education and, you know, I guess what what would you recommend and how would you do it? That's a pretty classical journalism ethic debate, you know, the idea of do you participate uh, there's a famous uh, photo of this Ethi Ethiopian child with a vulture behind him. And this child is to illustrate the famine in the early 90s, and it won a Pulitzer Prize. And the photographer later killed himself because he just felt so much guilt for not helping that child, but for being a photographer, for, for documenting the story. And then maybe his photo went on to do some good to get people to donate to the famine or uh, to sway the minds of policymakers to participate. But because he didn't himself participate, he it was guilt that he carried for the rest of his life. And that's something you see with other issues like people who are climate refugees or any sort of refugee. Do you try to help that person right then in the moment or do you document it and tell their story? So with these climate changes that are coming with what we'll need to do, you know, it's going to be important to get people out there to tell and witness those stories. So I think that's just an ethical debate that you have to take on your own. I think you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to exploit those situations to get people aware of them so that they are not repeated or so that good situations are repeated. Yeah, I think that's it's a kind of a tough call, kind of a moral debate. And I think part of the trouble I have sometimes as a journalist is wanting to participate and engage with people in the moment and less of, you know, sit back and observe and let something happen. Feeling that I might be exploiting their lifestyle or their culture or an issue that they're struggling with by getting, you know, good footage or something. A friend of mine works for kayakers and he makes films for Red Bull and things like that. And they have a pretty strict rule is like you always keep filming, even if one of the kayaks has flipped. And hmm. so that's, you know, that's a different issue because they're creating their own drama by running these rivers and everything like that. But uh, that's kind of a similar thing is we have great footage and a lot of drama and a great story if you just keep filming and keep witnessing instead of participating. Yeah. Uh, have you ever encountered a situation where you've had, I mean, you had a, a wildlife that's under duress? Is there anything you remember or you could share? No, I can't really think of anything. I, I think I'd <laughs> intervene and you know, <laughs> get a fish hook out of the mouth or whatever kind of thing like that. So, yeah, I think I'm more of the interventionist type. Like I said, you know, that's I think with uh, sea level rise or something like that, you know, there's you can document it and then get out of the way or anything like that. Yeah, I can't think of. Yeah, I have a clear conscience, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, you know, you're still a, a young filmmaker, relatively young. You have decades of like those. Maybe those moments will pop up. I'll be curious how you encounter those. You'll definitely have to share those with me. One of the things that the average listener of the show, my my guess would be someone who's doing some adaptation planning. Probably not a lot of filmmakers necessarily listening, but I, I hope you do share this podcast with your network Certainly. of people. But Let's say there's a planner working for a local government or a small conservation group and they're doing adaptation planning and they're listening to this and they're thinking, you know what? I got to use more visuals. I got to do these sort of things. What sort of advice could you give them? Because your average adaptation planner and you know, that could be a conservation planner or whatever is not going to become a filmmaker. And so are there different steps, different resources, different things that they could do to try to bring more of what you do into their job in a realistic way? I think. I like to think of it as a rhetoric 
And I look at President Obama's speeches quite often. He, you know, kind of talks about the qualities we all share, the ideals we have, the problems we're facing, and then the ways our ideas will propel us past these problems. And I think that's a pretty good quick format. You could do, you know, four or five frame either photos or if it was a video, it could be about a one minute video, hyper shareable on social media, on Instagram that just has, you know, one photo of like, well, this is going to be a problem. Another photo of this is what we think we can do. Another photo of this is us doing it. And then another photo of this is the success of our project. Um, and you could do a combination of uh, photo, video, slides, uh, just text slides on photos. But I think that's a pretty simple communication tool. And uh, that's, again, something we did together is making that adapters comic strip, taking that same idea as just here's a few frames with the text that explains what's going on and then make it pretty simple of step one, here's the problem, step two, here's how we fix the problem, step three, here's us fixing the problem, step four, the problem is fixed. Oh, and- I well, I mean, I love that comic you did. I mean, Adam did all the work on that. We had a little brainstorm, but it, it was we tried to approach it like, okay, this is a graphic novel, and it's so simplistic, and the amount of dialogue in that is so you know minimal. But I would be more than willing to like share that with policy staff or in some congressional office. You know, they're not going to go read a five-page white paper on some of these topics, but you hand them this. Okay, this is fundamentally what's happening with these wildlife species. And so, no, I thought that graphic novel comic that you did, we should be doing more of those. Yeah, and I think, you know, beyond the stylistic things of it being a graphic novel, just the basic idea is that it's pictures and words. Um, you know, that any, any, uh, uh, any scientist there, anybody who can, you know, put photos or pictures on words, you could go to a meme generator website and upload four photos of your project and make it four memes in a slide and then share that or send it to a policymaker. You know, I think, yeah, really just boiling that down simplistically and saying step one, step two, step three, step four. I think that'd be a great way to rapidly communicate what your project is to show the visual evidence of the problem, of the solution and of, you know, the happy bird in a birdbath success story of your fruits of your labor. Um, and that would be a good, quick way to communicate those adaptation issues. Oh, I love the meme and how it challenges you to distill a concept down to just its fundamental nature. I mean, I've done several for the America Daps Facebook page, and I'll sit there and rack my brain. I'll try to find some sort of famous image, and then what would be the text related to climate change? And it's not easy. It's such a somewhat obscure topic, but uh, the process of getting it down to a meme and people are more likely to read a meme than that five page white paper. So uh, not that I want people making major decisions based on what reading a meme, but uh, <laughs> there is value to it because people are glancing at these things very quickly. So, and it's not necessarily a major, major decision, but it's, it could be something, you know, that really affects you if it's a strong image or if it's a very clear statement. Um, and then if it's something that affects someone enough to share it along their media or to however that goes. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure photos have changed the course of history. So I'm sure a meme will do the same. I want you to weigh in just a little bit more. So let's say someone has a grant and they have $5,000 to work on the communication side of it. 
Now, is are there opportunities to work with people like you? You know, they're like, okay, I want to do some sort of mini film or some sort of visual. Do you have any? Could you? I mean, specifically recommend? I mean, filmmakers for conservation. I think you have a database of filmmakers. Would that be a good place to go for someone who's you know looking to spend some money on these things? Or I mean, are there any resources like that? Yeah, you know, I think going to those pages like Filmmakers for Conservation, going to uh, the International League of Conservation Photographers, going to some production companies uh, that have, you know, good history of making short communication projects. Yeah, you know, I think that's something that we at Filmmakers for Conservation would then take and say, okay, well, here's a filmmaker in your area. We can get you in touch with them. Here's a sample of their work. They've worked on these similar issues or made similar products of a one-minute explanatory video or a five-photo essay that they could try to submit to a local magazine. And yeah, there's certainly great options for that. And I think, yeah, it might just be such an overwhelming thing of, okay, well, I have $5,000. Now what? Who do I talk to? That, yeah, it's great to go to Filmmakers for Conservation, Conservation Media Group, uh, local universities that have media and conservation and environmental film programs. Um, American University has one, uh, University of Montana. Pretty much every journalism program will have somebody, some students who are interested in working on their portfolios and to make a project and to come in and photograph a project. So, yeah, there's there's certainly a lot of options. I don't think you you are a great ambassador for your organization, but I don't think it's marketed well enough. I mean, I've been on the other side of that where we're putting a grant proposal together or money that's been distributed. And we talk about the communication side, and it's such a throwaway conversation. Oh, we'll do this. You know, we'll put out a publication, blah, blah, blah. And I think your kind of group and other groups, it's something's missing. I don't know if it's just like a conversation that needs to happen at the appropriate conferences and such, but just marketing what you guys do. And literally, I think these people need to connect those dots because I don't think they're going to go out of their way enough. And I just think it's a huge missed opportunity. And I mean, you're doing, you, you're out there, you're pitching it. I get it. You're doing your job. I just, you know, what else can encourage it, though? Because, I mean, there's money on, on the communication side. And, you know, $5,000 for uh, a, an individual filmmaker working on a project for a couple months actually is not insignificant. Yeah, I think I think a challenge with the uh, media production world is uh, for commercial, you know, a day on a shoot, $5,000 could go pretty quickly. And I think that's the other side of the problem is I think filmmakers who are interested in conservation issues are certainly work, used to working for free. And then once you start talking about money, then it, it gets ballooned really quickly. You know, <laughs> I mean, like $5,000 could be like a lens rental for a day, depending on the production. So I think it's, you know, coming together to work to solutions um, and just just communication. Just, you know, we're all working together on the same project of trying to do better for the world. So definitely communicating, becoming more of a team. And, you know, that, again, yeah, that's like what I've tried to do with Filmmakers for Conservation. Just reach out to more scientists uh, reach out to more researchers and, you know, say like, you know, there's probably photographers in your local area. If you look around, that would be happy to help you out. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I upscaling this to fancy cameras and such. Like you said, you can film some actually pretty good things on an iPhone, but your crowd is more likely to be able to tell that story better than maybe the, the project coordinator and even making those connections sort of saying, here is an opportunity for you. And, you know, you're you're connecting that way. So, I mean, even at the smallest scale, it's just a lot of filmmakers are perfectionists and they have a vision for this, how they could tell the story <laughs> and they want to get that, you know, and hit the. But I think a down and dirty like, well, this is going to get posted a few times and, 
you know, maybe get a few thousand views and that'll be great and uh, kind of move on and establish that connection and stay in touch. I think that's a great thing I found out last night, actually, is uh, the Google Street View app basically allows you to use your phone and to take, I don't know, maybe like 25 photos in a sphere around you. And then it'll automatically upload that to Google Street View. So an application here for scientists is, you know, you know, photo a 360 degree photo of your marsh or of your woods that you're working on. Hmm. Uh, just getting more of that content out in new ways that uh, people will say like, oh, we're looking at Google Maps. Here's a street view image off the road. I'm going to click on that. What is that? Maybe I'll go to this protected area. Maybe I'll check this out. Hmm. So that's just a quick way. You know, there's there's so many little things like that now that I just found out about it last night. And I've been doing these uh, 360 degree submersive photos. And now there's an app for that. So. Wow. So it's great resources, but we are awash in information. And it just uh, I, I actually think the app is probably a good way to interface with some of that information that people are going to use. But, oh, the things that are coming online are amazing. Yeah. Well, so, Adam, we've got to wrap up relatively soon, but there are a couple other questions I want to ask. Just could you give us your, you know, a couple of your favorite all-time environmental films? That's a tough one. I guess my first would be Broken Tail. Uh, came out in, I believe, 2011, and it's a film about a tiger named Broken Tail that's hit by a train. And the filmmaker, uh, Colin Stafford Johnson, he's Irish, and he filmed Broken Tail since he was born in the early 90s. And then when he found out that he was hit by a train, he was devastated and wanted to go back to that national park, the Ranthamore National Park in India, and retrace Broken Tail's steps. And along the way, he finds that people are blast mining right outside the protected area, that there's poachers along the way. Um, you know, all these issues that are happening to tigers because of their fragmented habitat. And in the doing so of retracing Broken Tail steps, they find a natural area that becomes protected because they show the film to policymakers in India. So it's just, it's a beautiful wow. story. Wow. Um, the narration's great. The storytelling's great. And just the footage of the tiger is amazing. And, and the actual results are great. So that's been one of my favorites. Uh, Virunga. That came out 2014. Also, I think executive produced by Leonardo DiCaprio, and it's on Netflix. But Virunga is this story of Virunga National Park and the park rangers basically fighting against poachers and an oil development probe and helping the local community and the M23 militia that the oil company uh, subcontracts to subcontract to cause disruption in the area to make people want to have the stability of oil extraction the the filmmaking in that film is just incredible the the visuals are amazing there's a french photojournalist melanie gooby uh, going undercover with the security subcontractor um, just an, a riveting film that's beautiful and shows this intense fight so virunga is also a great one I actually haven't seen that, but I've seen the trailers for it. Yeah, it looks absolutely gorgeous. Now I've got to sit down and watch that. I'll, I'll put links yeah. to this on – I'm going to have a website page just for your uh -huh. podcast with some information, filmmakers for conservation. But I'll put links to these things too, just you know, highlights. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Two, I mean, Was there another one for environmental film because I wanted to ask another question? I mean so many are <laughs> coming to my head, so yeah, – I'm sure you uh, have a dozen, but I'm making you pick your top two or three here, so – what? I mean, uh, Racing Extinction was a great one. 
Okay. Um, it's been pretty big. It was made by uh, Luis Sahoyos and the Ocean Preservation Society, the crew who made uh, The Cove, the film about dolphins in Taiji Bay. And it racing extinction is it just kind of collates all these extinction issues that's causing the anthropogenic extinction, the sixth grade extinction. And it shows the work of several artists who are fighting against it. So it has photography from Joel Sartor, one of the best National Geographic photographers. It has just uh, amazing stunts, public stunts that they pull to forward the issue of conservation and of extinction. They take like a car with a huge projector on it and just kind of do guerrilla projections of like CO2 chemical compounds coming out of uh, power stations and they project whales on buildings and it's pretty pretty fun visual film and just kind of the intense efforts that they went through to illustrate the extinction and the events that's happening so racing extinction would be another good one okay i want to ask and there's these environmental films that most people have never seen now what is your favorite all-time film a more traditional kind of film do you have those? Do you like this? Like Transformers 2, something like that. What is your favorite film? <laughs> Transformers 2, uh, certainly. Okay. Uh, gosh, no, I don't know. Come on, growing up, you didn't, I mean, you know, you go with Star Wars, something like that. You don't have a favorite film. Uh, you know, I liked the movie True Lies a lot growing up. It's an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but I've seen that now. And it's a James Cameron, and he's doing some good climate change stuff. So, But it's kind of a very outdated, sexist action film, so... <laughs> Not as into it anymore. I never uh, would have thought you pulled it, would have pulled out True Lies. For, yeah, yeah. Okay, go on. Big fan of uh, Big Lebowski. Okay. Yeah. Going back to the argument of uh, entertainment versus uh, actual enrichment. Uh, let's see, Children of Men. That's a great movie. Um, oh, it is awesome. It's been one of my favorites, and that's also kind of an environmental parable of, you know, something could change in our biology, and this is how our entire world would change. I've kind of seen that as a good proxy for environmental issue films boy that slow motion sequence when he's like going through the street holding the girl and it's just like slow-mo i mean i was breathless after that it's like a 12 minute take too i have two or three shots in that movie that lasts about 12 minutes dazzling Um, the revenant i just saw that and that was intense i mean again obviously a story of of man versus nature of uh kind of the powerlessness we can be to natural forces and then the the dependency we have with nature, but um, a similar kind of cinematography where these really long shots, the opening scene is this really long, slow hmm. shot. Uh, I don't even know how they do it. And that's fun. Uh, yeah. Uh, in your, in your to uh, Birdman and Revenant, they have some shots that as a filmmaker, I don't even know how they did it. So that's wow. it's pretty impressive. Well, my takeaway from all those names is true lies. I would never <laughs> would have guessed. You are a much deeper person than I am. It's and you a childhood film. So. Well, I said all-time favorite film, and you give me true lies. I mean, I could, you could have been Empire Strikes Back or something, but you gave me true lies, which is a great film, but all-time, I'm going to have to judge you on that one. <laughs> so, Adam, we are. I need to wrap this up the with you. The bridge is out! <laughs> So a couple of things. I want you to get the final word, but I also want you to put just a really quick plug. You There's this river in Chile that you're trying to bring yeah. attention to. Please say something, mention a website or whatever. Use this as a, as a plug for that. So go ahead. There's a great movement in Patagonia called Patagonia Sin Represas, Patagonia Without Dams. For about 10 years, there's this huge mega dam project. They wanted to put five mega dams on the Baker and the Pascua River. 
And it was an amazing response of community coming out and protesting the dam, ecotourism, ranchers, um, all sorts of people all across the spectrum and even all across the world united in protests. And they eventually got the dam projects to be shut down because of the lack of environmental uh, impact analysis covering certain issues. So the idea of this film is to float the whole Baker River. And it's the most voluminous river in Chile, and it's the most beautiful place I've ever been. It's this amazing turquoise, blue, rapids, green, lush environment all around it, untouched nature. And uh, we want to float the river to basically establish the river as a protected area, telling the stories of the people who've lived along the river for the last hundred years in this pioneer frontier of Chile, uh, and show the biodiversity importance of this river because the actual flow of the river is owned by a Spanish-Italian energy company. Um, so the flow of the river were privatized in the Pinochet dictatorship and then sold off to these uh, foreign companies. So we're going to try to get the rights back of the river to the people there. So the Baker River, Baker Libre, and you can follow with uh, Round River Conservation Studies as a project down there working with the Chilean Forest Service and Conservación Patagónica taking students into these amazing places and doing the ground studies to study biodiversity. So I'll have links for that. I'm, I'm going to ask you to any additional sort of web resources. Yeah, I'm going to get you to share yeah. with me and I'll post those up. So it's all just consolidated, but nice plug. And so I want you to have the final word, any final messages about this topic. Again, thanks, Adam. It's always a pleasure. And uh, I'm jealous of your lifestyle. You're off into the <laughs> wild, but let's let's – any last things for our listeners? Well, a great thing about this film is I'm just so privileged to be able to float this river because of the work of scientists, of legislators, of the community coming together. And so it's a celebration of what you can do when you win that battle against the developers. And I guess I would my my one message is to focus on your successes. I think conservation biology is triage, and we need to remember all those patients and places we've saved and celebrate those and not forget to remind the public about those success stories. You know, uh, I mean, even we've kind of take national parks for granted. It's 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 a hundred year anniversary uh, this month. And uh, even those are such a huge success just to celebrate those national parks. So more stories, more photography, more videos of how we as scientists, as conservationists have done good for ourselves, for the world, for our fellow species. Uh, and that'll keep people engaged with natural history and uh, excited to make a difference for these upcoming challenges. Well, in regards to adaptation, I think you're one of the few filmmakers who are really starting to think about it, and I appreciate it. But any sort of outreach you can do in your community to help think about ways of telling these stories, it would be much appreciated. Certainly, yeah. Excited to see how these stories develop and how we can communicate them. All right. Well, thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. And for everyone out there, thanks for joining us. And until next time, uh, this is America Daps, the climate change podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Doug Parsons with America Daps, the climate change podcast. It's time again for the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour. And I'm going to be brutally honest here. Um, and first of all, welcome, Tim. <laughs> hey, Doug. How we, are you? Occasionally, we have to do these kind of successively, and so I'm drinking the same wine that I had last time, and I don't want to lie to my listeners out there. 
I'm drinking this Chilean wine. That's okay, but I probably should have switched it out to add it to the authenticity of this whole podcast, but I did not, so my apologies. So, all right, did you manage to run off and get a, some new alcohol? No, I think I'll do a wine run this evening, though. Yeah, yeah, I probably need to go get some reds and such. Yeah, I'm worried to get whites in the house. Well, uh, I don't know. In this weather, you know, it's it's cold white at the moment. Cold, you're right. That's what I'm drinking right now. So, Tim. Yes. Today's guest is um, <laughs> drawing a blank. Adam Spencer. Adam Spencer is filmmakers for conservation, and I know you appreciate these sort of things. So, if Adam believes in using visuals to communicate science, and he's been doing a lot of great works with his organization. But he's worked for National Geographic. He he does study abroad programs, and so I I think it's something that you'd probably be very interested in doing. This guy actually is on his way to Chile. That's right. He's on his way to Chile in a couple weeks to lead a study abroad course on, you know, and they're talking a lot about climate change adaptation in this course. But great guy doing some cool films. And he did a little short video. I worked with him in, in the past on a short little video on adaptation. But yeah, I thought that would be something that you could appreciate. Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, look forward to hearing that interview. He's a uh, he's done some great work. You know, it's nice to see the, the whole organization it has just such a great concept behind it because the power of, of media and of film, visual images, is is so great. And you can really bend that power towards conservation and responding to climate change or improving the lives of people. You can do great things. So, Well, we had a little brief conversation. I kind of put him on the spot, but I don't know if you saw that kind of informal study that when Leo DiCaprio – mentioned and this was a Washington Post article mm-hmm. mentioned climate change in his Oscar speech it had the greatest like response via Twitter or just across the board on climate change in like 10 years and so that for better or for worse when you get that sort of exposure you have someone like that yes Adam and I had a little you know fun conversation around that because um, he you know he toils away producing environmental films and such but those don't always get a very large audience yes right. Right. Hard thing to do. So are you a Lee DiCaprio fan? Do you feel like he's a good spokesperson for the cause? Um, I, I, no, I'm not a fan, I would say. <laughs> uh, but you know how I feel about movie stars in general. <laughs> I mean, I drop well, cultural I, reference I, to you. You don't know anything. You're terrible. I don't know anything. No, but I, I have tremendous respect and take comfort, frankly, in uh, knowing that someone with that kind of international star appeal is getting good messages out there um, and doing good things beyond, you know, beyond the screen. So well, more power to him. It could be worse. It could be really like a B celebrity, but it's like a a list celebrity. So all yeah. the all the best. Yeah. Okay. One other issue I want to talk about to you in our uh, power hour here is another kind of recent controversy that sort of annoys me. And maybe you read a little bit about it is they talked to some, I think Wildlife um, Conservation Society was at the center of this, but some scientists are concerned that so much emphasis is placed on climate change that we're not really focusing on the immediate threats to biodiversity. And I, I get initially what the argument is, but I mean, I think I've moved into the camp that of course you have to think about habitat loss and invasive species and but we're not making actually a lot of headway on those issues and to me thinking about it in regards to like adaptation adapting to climate change can you approach some of those old conservation issues with a newfound urgency you might actually get a little bit uh more traction on existing issues and so it's just to me it's it seemed kind of silly to poo-poo climate change i mean i think most people get it i mean what do you think hmm 
Yeah, you know, again, that's another sort of false dichotomy, I think. I, I agree with you. There's, it, it would be foolish to pit climate change concerns and climate change funding and climate change attention against things like habitat loss or invasive species um, and so on. You got to do all of it. But I think um, if there's a big message about climate change adaptation and responding to climate change, it's that people can do good things and creative things. And I, you know, I said this in my very first interview with you, just about the the power of being innovative, especially in this country, right? Um, finding innovative solutions to problems, and if you can unleash and untap that potential, people do great things. And so. If there's a spillover effect from people doing great things and responding to climate change that also benefits, you know, habitat conservation or invasive species removal, then that's a good thing. And I, I could see that happening, frankly. The, the, the big sort of message for non-conservation-minded people about adaptation is that they can do things to make their world better and their communities better. And in doing so, knock on effects that benefit wildlife and biodiversity in general. So I'm in favor of it. Yeah, I hate using terms like paradigm shift. It's a little bit of cliche, but it's... To me, it's a paradigm shift in how we approach conservation. And so even if you're doing the same old thing in regards to like preventing habitat loss and such, if a benefit, like you say, is that you are creating more resilient landscape, that's fitting in the larger narrative of climate change. And so why fight it? And if it's a lens that more of the public can kind of appreciate, yeah, I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of silly, and I think some folks that really get narrow vision of their particular fields. I mean, I, I, I get where they might just be pissed off, like, okay, everybody has to start thinking about climate change or your grant application. Oh, how are you going to incorporate climate change to this? I, I'm sure that's a bit frustrating for people who have been doing this for a long time, but that's where we're headed. Yep. Or else. <laughs> <laughs> or you're not going to get squat, okay? You heard it here from America's like, Daps. No money for you. Your panda conservation doesn't include climate change, and the hell with the pandas. <laughs> They're doomed, and we don't care about them. <laughs> it's like a West Side Story thing. You're either on our side or the other side. That's right. Um, we'll draw the lines and the fights here. America adapts its way to saving the whales. How about that? America taps its way to saving the whales. Yeah, and just add anything after that, you know, right. um, cockroaches, whatever. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I just want to bring that up. It, it, it was an interesting little read that I saw, and it, you know, it, it almost had this throwback quality of like a conservation issue from like the late 90s or something. You're like, okay, well, gee, I guess that's interesting, but climate change is going to just squash all those things anyway. So it was a good conversation piece. Well, and, you know, of course, um, preserving habitat and protecting biodiversity is a key uh, strategy for adapting to climate change, especially when you think about ecosystem services. Uh, if you want, you know, clean water for your population, you need protected natural areas on major watersheds so that you, you know, have the water sort of storing and water filtration capacity of, an, of a healthy ecosystem, then that is climate adaptation and habitat protection and biodiversity protection all rolled up into one. So, again, that's why the dichotomy just seems kind of false to me. Yeah. 
Well, listen, you mentioned ecosystem service. Before we finish here, uh, I don't suppose you have any good ecosystem service folks you would recommend to join the show? Hmm. You know, it might be good to get Tom Lovejoy at some point. Um, yeah, okay. And, uh, you know, he's he's Mr. Biodiversity, right? He's one of the leaders in the field. And he's been working on various aspects of ecosystem services and how do you value them. Um, but he would have some interesting thoughts to share, perhaps. Oh, he'd probably have some fun anecdotes to share, even unrelated to maybe the topic at hand. It'd be a good guest anyway. Yeah. All right. Um, I'll have your people talk to his people, then have their people call my people. Okay. And we'll do. <laughs> we'll get them. Why the hell do I pay you? <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Tim. Another great episode of the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour with Tim Watkins. We'll see you next time on America Adapts, the climate change podcast. See you later, Tim. See ya. Thanks again for listening in on America Daps, the climate change podcast. Special thanks goes out to Adam Spencer for Filmmakers for Conservation. If you want to learn more about what Adam is doing, visit our website at americadaps.org. We'll have links to all the things that he mentioned in the podcast. And please consider subscribing to us on iTunes. You can just go to iTunes and look up America Daps and just hit subscribe. And if you have ideas for guests or just general comments, visit our website at americadaps.org and contact me at americaadapts at gmail.com. Thanks again, everyone, and look forward to seeing you next time.